Hi, I'm Alicia. And I'm Robin. And you're listening to Bowel Moments. The podcast sharing real talk about the realities of IBD. Served on the the rocks. This week we had such an informative conversation with Dr. David Choi. Dr. Choi is the specialty clinical pharmacist and associate director of the IBD Center at the University of Chicago. We talked to him about his joy in being a patient advocate. We talked to him about his research in insurance issues like prior authorization and how a pharmacist can help you with your insurance issues. We talked to him about supplements and how your pharmacist can help you figure out what's safe for you to use. And we talked to him about networking with other IBD pharmacists as part of the IBD Pharmacist Network. Cheers. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Bowel Moments. This is Robin. Hey, guys. This is Alicia, and we are really excited to be joined by Dr. David Choi. David, welcome to the show. I just was telling you that we've been wanting to get you on for more than a year, so we're so, so excited to have you on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me today. I'm really excited to be on this as well as kind of talk about IBD and kind of everything related to that. Super. Very first question for you, though, very unprofessional is what are you drinking? I have an old fashioned. This is definitely my go to cocktail. Um, so, an old fashioned I made right before jumping on. Oh, perfect. I but, love an old fashioned. I'm yeah. a convert to old fashions, though. Just November was the first old fashioned I'd ever had in my life. I distinctly remember it, and it was delicious, and I'm a fan. So. Yeah, if, uh, it's interesting. I feel like I can gauge a cocktail bar or kind of any restaurant by their old fashioned. So, it's like just a good test. Yeah, that's true. Robin, what about you? I am drinking a lovely, strawberry mojito. Yes. Look at you. Yes. What are you drinking, Alicia? I'm drinking champs back to this usual. So yay. Well, again, David, super, super excited to have you on the show. Next question for you is what is your IBD connection? What brought you into our community? Why did you choose IBD as your profession? Yeah. So, um, you know, normally I did pharmacy school and everything along those lines. And what kind of really brought me here is my clinical practice was inflammatory bowel disease. So after completing my residency out at Hopkins in Baltimore, um, I was kind of looking for uh, the next position. And at the time, I, I knew I want to go into faculty position of going to a school of pharmacy to teach because that's always been a big passion of mine. So when I was kind of applying, there was this interesting spot that opened up at University of Illinois that was an inflammatory bowel disease pharmacist position. And for me, I was like, what is that? Because I feel like IBD is just something that's not taught very well in, pharma- in for pharmacists. So, you know, I think I had an hour or two lecture in pharmacy school. I think Ramicade was the only thing they talked about at the time. And then ultimately, you know, that was it. And I never saw it again, never heard of it again. So after kind of looking into it a little bit more, it just seemed like a really good fit and opportunity to continue growing and learning and just to better understand this process and, you know, the therapies that we have. So I ended up interviewing for that job. I got the job and I started there and it was just an amazing learning experience. I had to start from the ground, didn't really know exactly what I was doing at the beginning and just trying to, you know, build it together in the foundations. Since then, though, I feel like I've really come to understand, you know, the importance of patient care, getting patients the therapies they need, and really being the advocate and champion for patients kind of moving forward. So I'm currently now at University of Chicago, where I am the IBD pharmacist there. And then, you know, really just helping once again, advocate for our patients and getting them therapies that they need. How long ago was it? So you said it was just Remicade was really kind of the primary source of treatment for inflammatory bowel disease. How long ago was that? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't so it wasn't that long ago. If I had to think about it, I guess it, you know, when I went through pharmacy school, learning. It was somewhere in like 2012, 2013. Okay. Um, so Remicade and Humira, I think those were kind of the big ones, but yeah. 
Intivios, Talara, none of those really existed at the time. So I remember even going back when I was starting my job, just looking at my old pharmacy school notes and none of that was there. So it's crazy to think that that's not that long ago. That's only 10, 11 years ago. And that Remicade was just approved for IBD right after I was diagnosed, right after I had my surgery. So that's only 21, 22 years ago. So it's just, it seems like such a short amount of time for so much change to happen. Yes. Yeah. I mean, especially as a pharmacist, that's a lot for you to keep up with, you know, because also these drugs work in different ways as well. So you definitely have to learn like mechanisms of action and be able to figure it out. And now you're adding a whole new layer of like biosimilars on top of that. So definitely there's a lot happening in the world. And I want to get back to that for sure. But when you started working with IBD, what was your crash course that you did? Like, what did you do to learn inflammatory bowel disease that quickly? Because not going from like, I had two hours to I am at an IBD center seems like it's a big (laughs) jump. So how did you do that? Yeah. So, you know, I think one of the resources that I had at the time, pharmacists have board certification, kind of board certification courses and things along those lines. So there was one that I was given and it was inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, It was actually written by the predecessor before me at University of Illinois. So she wrote the book chapter on it. So that was my crash course. I studied that in and out just to better understand it. Um, And, you know, that was kind of how I tried to familiarize myself and really get a little bit more competent. But, you know, obviously I feel like words on a page is different than actual clinical practice. So that was also a really great learning opportunity. You know, the thing that I'm really excited about is interestingly, I'm actually writing that chapter now, the same board certification one. So it kind of came full circle. Yeah. So, you know, hopefully this will help other people get more familiarized. So. Oh my gosh. Nobody can see us clapping for you, but we were both like happy, excited faces and clapping for you because that is so cool. I love that. I love that weird kismet moment there. I got a little chills. (laughs) That is so exciting. Tell me though, I guess I'm wondering how much, because if you're in a hospital-based setting, how much direct patient interaction do you actually get with these patients living with IBD and how much of it is you interacting with their sort of clinical team instead? Where do you fit within that picture? Yeah. And, you know, I think that's a huge area of question right now. I think, you know, when we think about what is an IBD pharmacist, what should the role of an IBD pharmacist be? It's it's relatively new. So I've there's a lot that we don't know. So it's kind of cool because each center is kind of pioneering their own course of what IBD pharmacists should be doing. So I would say in my role is kind of half and half. So I'm mostly based originally out of the specialty pharmacy, but I'm clinic based. So I do, I am in clinic with the providers. So really my role is a support role. So in clinic, the providers may ask me to, Hey, can you come and just talk to this patient? I want to start them on this therapy, just kind of talk to them what that's like, the process. And then other times it may just be in the back. Hey, like, you know, what's going on with this? Can you help us figure out like the patient saying there's this issue. So that's kind of one aspect of it. But then there are a lot of patient calls that I do. So right now um, at University of Chicago, we've been doing a pharmacist directed treat to target. So for certain therapies, it's pharmacists doing telemed calls. Um, and then from there, kind of gauging clinical scores, as well as lab monitoring and kind of things along those lines, which has been a really great opportunity. I've learned a lot about medications, clinical disease scores, and kind of things like that. So yeah, I would say it's kind of a combination of both. So the immediate question that pops in my head is in these 
other areas where people are pioneering adding an IBD pharmacist to the overall care team, which is amazing. What kind of questions should patients be asking the pharmacist that they now have access to that specializes in IBD? Um, you know, I definitely think a lot of the instances that we encounter are definitely therapy related. So drug interactions are a big one. We get that a lot like, hey, I'm thinking about starting this supplement or, you know, I'm thinking about this medication. Is there any interactions with my therapy? With biologics, there's not as much of a concern, but with the small molecules, those ones definitely have drug interactions. So being a resource there, any kind of copay issues that, you know, they may be encountering or insurance issues, I think pharmacists are just a really good resource to have because we've, you know, in the past have actually processed prescriptions. So we know exactly how the processing works, what it should look like. So sometimes when a pharmacy is telling a patient a certain thing, you know, sometimes I'm just kind of like, that doesn't sound right. That's not how that should be working. So let me follow up with the pharmacy directly to figure out what's going on because it sounds like they're making mistakes somewhere. That is super interesting. And I love the idea of you also getting that patient interaction just because again, you, you're, you're hearing different things and you're seeing this through a very different lens than the healthcare team and being able to kind of add that, that extra layer on top of it. So I think that's super, super cool. I'm going to back this up a little bit because again, you've seen this evolution from basically having just Remicade or kind of basically steroids to now having even more things that are coming down the pipeline and even more things that are like, again, working in very different ways. What can you do give us the very, very quick and dirty version of like, you mentioned small molecules as one of the things. I don't know that people necessarily know what that is. Can you walk us through a little bit about like starting with Remicade? Because I think that's the one that people probably know the most about. Like what is Remicade and human? How do the biologics work? And then how do the jack inhibitors work? And like kind of what's new? Like, can you give us a very like the primer on medications? And I mean that in like, here's your five minutes. Go. Yeah, absolutely. You know, definitely big thing to do because I feel like this could easily become a two hour long talk. Just I know, about I know. All right. I know. Sorry. But <laughs> see what you can do with it. All right. So, um, you know, when we think about therapies that we have for our patients with moderate to severe inflammatory bowel disease, we really have these type of agents called advanced IBD therapies, and they really comprise two different groups. We have biologics, and then we have something called small molecules. I'll be going in with a little bit more. So, Biologics are essentially monoclonal antibodies that are designed to hit certain kind of pathways. So think about infliximab, adalimumab, some of the other ones that we have. So the anti-TNF-alpha, which stands for the anti-tumor necrosis factor alpha. The TNF pathway essentially is a part of the inflammatory cascade. So when TNF is active, it causes an increase in the immune activity. So by blocking that and blunting that effect, it's thought to help decrease the immune system activity allowing the bowels to heal. So the inflammation can go down allowing the bowels to heal. So tons of studies were done where they actually found that for inflammatory bowel disease, there were a lot of TNF activity that was happening in the bowels. So by, you know, once again, targeting that, that was a big thing. So I think when we think about Remicade, Infliximab, Humira and kind of things like that, those are really these game-changing drugs that kind of came came out of market because it really revolutionized how we managed inflammatory bowel disease. Before that, to your point, it was steroids, methotrexate, azathioprine, which has long-term side effects and kind of things along those lines. And honestly, didn't do a very good job either. So with those, you know, essentially that's where the process started. So from there, a couple other groups of medications have come out since. So we have the anti-integrin inhibitors. So those ones are Intivio, Tisabri, or Natalizumab. Those are kind of the two 
that we think about, but Intivio is really the designer drug that we we now utilize. What they do is they actually prevent white blood cells from being able to move to the target that they're supposed to get to. So when we think about white blood cells being a key marker of inflammation, they have to kind of get to that site. So when the white blood cells get to the GI tract, that's what causes the inflammation. So by blocking their ability to get there, that's kind of the mechanism for how it works. The next one that we have are the interleukin 12 and 23. So those are also other markers. So if we think about, you know, alert systems our bodies have that activate the immune system, the interleukins are part of that as well. So by blocking those, it can help decrease the immune response and the help with the inflammation as well. So we have those agents. And then we have the newest kit on the block called Skyrizi that just came out about a year ago. So that one is a targeted interleukin 23 inhibitor that we have that is essentially doing the same thing, but it's more specific and more targeted therapy that we have. And those are kind of our biologic agents that we think about. There's other ones too, like Simzia and Symphony, but those are also anti-TNF alphas. And then the small molecules have kind of been really another game-changing medications where instead of it being a monoclonal antibody that goes and binds to these, these different groups, these are actually specific chemical agents that they've created. So the three that we currently have is Ozanamod or Zaposia, Zeljans or Tofacitinib, and then Rinvoc or Upadacitinib. So those are the three that we have. The way that Zaposia works is that Zaposia essentially blocks white blood cells from also getting to the site where it's supposed to work. It does it by kind of keeping them in the lymph nodes is kind of the big one. And then with the JAK inhibitors, the Janus kinase inhibitors, those are tofacinib as well as Rinvoq um, as well. Essentially, the way that it works is it causes the immune system to also decrease as well through, you know, hitting the inflammatory cascade again. I know that was probably a lot of information. I don't that know. Was, that was exceptional. Very good. Yeah, that was an excellent description. One that you mentioned that perked my ears a teensy bit is you mentioned one keeps something in the lymph nodes. Mm -hmm. I'm imagining some people hear that and go, okay, but isn't that a bad thing? So is keeping something, does that do anything with lymph nodes? Is Does it have any type of side effects that might be concerning to people about keeping something in their lymph nodes? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, that's a very valid point as well. And something that we will see kind of in terms of its activities. So we could almost think of the lymph nodes are almost like training grounds for white blood cells, in particular type called lymphocytes. Um, so it's the lymph nodes are essentially where they're kind of uh, conditioned. That's where they train in terms of ready to go out. So once they're all trained and ready to go, they get released from the lymph nodes to go out throughout the body to find what they're supposed to look for. But by blocking their ability to get out, it's sequestering the lymph lymphocytes in there. So it kind of blocks those white blood cells from getting to the GI tract for it to really work and cause issues. So that's always a good question is, you know, are there side effects from that? So it's something where in the blood count, when we check a complete blood count with differential, you'll see the absolute lymphocyte count drop. And that's actually a marker of the medication working is because it's dropping, which is what it's supposed right. to do. Based on what we know, this is a very safe medication. It's not been something that's been associated with more side effects, more infections or anything in particular along those lines. There are a few additional screening that we have to do at baseline before patients can get started. So related to like making sure they have immunity to chicken pox and things along those lines. But, you know, I think that's another role of the pharmacist is making sure that baseline screenings are done and that therapies are okay to start. Right. None of these medications do anything to necessarily change how your body would react to getting the flu or getting, all I can think of is herpes and that feels like it's the wrong one to say. <laughs> oh my God. Where did that come from? 
getting cold. It's still, your body's still going to try to fight those. It's just not going to go fight your intestines. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, I think something that we'll always see is in terms of the side effect profile of all these medications, you'll generally always see upper respiratory tract infections yeah. will go up a little bit, but it's not an immunosuppressant the way we think of transplant medications or cancer medications. So it's not something where your entire immune system is going to be just completely obliterated and you have nothing to mount immune response. Um, it will very slightly cause it to go down, allowing the bowels to heal. So because of that, you know, there may be a tiny bit of a risk, you know, with it. So just being a little bit more cautious, don't sit next to someone actively coughing and hacking up a lung like next to you type <laughs> thing. But yeah, you know, I think, I think that's kind of what we think about in a lot of ways. And these therapies are, are safe and they're not something that's going to be causing, you know, you to just very quickly develop kind of those kind of complications and things like that. Got it. That alleviates a lot of fear for a lot of people, I'm assuming. Okay. The one I'm going to throw on top of this is biosimilars. A lot of people are starting to get introduced to these biosimilars. There's already multiple of biosimilar to Remicade and, you know, a couple of them are Absola and Inflectra. Mm -hmm. Inflectra. Yep. And now we also have some coming out for Humira as well. And so Humira and Remicade, very commonly used medications. A lot of times they're kind of the frontline medications that people get diagnosed with, but now they're introducing biosimilars. What is a biosimilar? Yeah. So, you know, that's a very good question. Um, so when we think about biosimilars, I think one really important differentiation that people should be aware is that biosimilars are not generics. So those are something that I think we should really um, just kind of make sure people understand is that we should not be using the term generics with biosimilars. So when we think about biosimilars, these are medications that have been shown to be very similar to the already original product. So we have Humira and Remicade to, to what you mentioned. So then, you know, in a lot of ways, these have been huge studies that have been done essentially um, reproducing the monoclonal antibodies and shown to be exactly similar to the pre-existing ones. So through extensive testing, through extensive studies and kind of things like that, they've really shown that this is similar to, to the uh, originator products that we have. So, you know, I think to your point, the infliximab products were the first ones. So Renflexis, Inflectra, and Epsola, and they've really kind of paved the way, I think, in terms of our understanding about similars and kind of our, our comfortability in terms of using it and things along those lines as well. I know when Infliximab first came out, I think there was a lot of hesitation to switch. But I think through those experiences, we kind of figured out that really biosimilars are just as safe. They're just as effective. It's just, you know, kind of difference in a name, but they have really established in themselves in terms of being able to be used for inflammatory bowel disease. But the reason they have to be called a similar and not a generic is that the chemical signature is not exact exact. Is that correct? Yeah. So when we think about generics, generics are more so related to small molecules. So those are the chemical compounds we talked about. Um, you could think about it where, you know, if you're doing a chemical reaction or a chemistry or something like that, the goal of a small molecule is for you to create a chemical compound. So that's, you know, you start a little, a little bit with this ingredient, you put the temperature to this and then add this one with this liquid in there. And then, you know, boom, you have the small molecule out. The difference with the biosimilars is that because these are protein structures and monoclonal antibody, it's not something you can very easily design. We're not very good at designing protein structures in the lab. So we actually utilize um, different type of cells, such as, you know, like uh, Chinese hamster ovary cells and things like that to help produce it. So we'll feed them the building blocks and as well as the directions for how to make it. And then those cells would have to create it. So there could be minor differences in the protein structure. And that's what kind of puts it a little bit different is those protein structures are a little different between the biosimilar and the bio-originator product. But through the studies, they've really 
has shown that there's no difference though between those structures. Right. Like part of the process of even getting this medication close to the market is that you have to show that it acts the same way as the other product, like the originator product. Is that yep. correct? Yep, absolutely. So okay. um, that's kind of the main thing they have. There's another designation of biosimilars called interchangeability. So the one thing that we get really nervous about with biosimilars is that because of the small differences between them, one of the concerns always becomes, well, will it work as well? And then also, will you develop more antibodies against them, which is pretty much your body mounting an immune response against them. So, you know, that's always a concern because once that happens, you burn the bridge with that medication and you can't go back to it. So, you know, from there, that was kind of initial hesitation. But, you know, a lot of the ways that I think we think of is it's okay to start somebody on that biosimilar just keep them on that biosimilar. The main concerns that we get are when patients start switching frequently with the biosimilar and and other products, and that's where the concern pops up. So a further designation was made called interchangeability. And that's where if the drug company has done additional studies, looking at multiple switches between the, the originator and the biosimilar, and there's no difference, then it's called an interchangeable product. So that also comes with this whole other changes too, because pharmacies could technically, depending on the state, they can switch out the biosimilar for the originator without the physician approval and kind of things along those lines. So, you know, it's a really interesting era that we're entering because really no interchangeable products have existed for biosimilars yet in the IBD space, but the first one's coming out in July. Okay. I think some of the things that we've heard and some concerns that have come up actually on this podcast have been from some people that their insurance companies have dictated that they do switch from their originator product to a biosimilar and sometimes even to move from that biosimilar to one of the other biosimilars. And so number one, talk a little bit more about the interchangeability factor of things and then also what you may have done to help some of these patients not feel quite so either uncomfortable with the switches that have been happening and or to help them stay with the product that they would prefer for either the originator product or the biosimilar. Yeah. So, you know, that's definitely something that we think about a lot as well. Um, The multiple switches is something we definitely want to stay away from, you know, as of right now, because really the data is not there to show us the safety of multiple switches and really switching in between the biosimilars to the data is not really there as of now showing us the safety of it. So that is definitely something that we have. But, you know, thinking about the U.S. healthcare system and things along those lines, money is just speaks so loudly. So, you know, anytime they get a better price for a drug, they're really going to do whatever they can to switch it over. So that's definitely a big concern that we have as well. I think, you know, something to kind of think about is there's this phenomenon called the nocebo phenomenon. Have you heard of that before? I have, but let's labor under the assumption that this is a new concept to everybody. Yeah. So the nocebo phenomenon is really interesting because it's very, it's the opposite of the placebo response. So placebo response is where if you give someone a sugar pill and tell them this is the medication, interestingly, some people respond and, you know, that we see changes in things and just somehow the body, you know, just realize that it's working. So kind of thing, you know, so when we think about the placebo response, that's what we see is where they give in something negative, but they see a positive result. The nocebo response is the exact opposite where we give them the medication and really there's nothing that wrong that should be happening. But I think through preconceived notions that either the product is inferior or that there's problems with the product, there's this perceived inferiority. So immediately patients are like, you know, I feel like I'm flaring. I don't think this medication's working. 
And it is actually an interesting phenomenon that we've been seeing as well. And really the best way of kind of addressing that is really through education. So, you know, saying biosimilars haven't shown to be safe and effective. You know, once again, the multiple switches, that's where it becomes a problem. But really the one-time switch and things along those lines are totally okay. The thing that I think is interesting is with the Infliximab products, those were just what was going inside the IV bags was different. So when you look, it's still a clear bag that's hanging off the IV bag. And it's just really the name is different on the bag. The Humira biosimilars, I think, will be interesting because those are actually different pens. Those are different syringes. They physically will look like different products. So it, it looks very different. So I think, you know, the importance of nocebo and just education, talking to patients before the switch, making sure they're comfortable with the switch as well. If it's something where the patient absolutely needs to stay on therapy, though, that's definitely something we're talking about with the clinic and figuring out different ways, appealing those denials and things along those lines. But really, I think those will only be in cases where patients have shown that they've failed the biosimilar, you know, in terms of being able to switch it. It's going to be very challenging, I think, to really fight it every single time and try and stay on the originator product and really just getting the word out there that biosimilars are safe and they are effective. But are you saying that if somebody fails the biosimilar that you think they can go back to the originator product? Yeah, I think, you know, there have been instances where, you know, let's say someone tried it and they had some kind of reaction to it or something, they were able to make the case to try and go back to the originator product. Got it. Okay. Because I mean, sometimes it's like, I don't know, the stabilizer they used and it is different, right? I mean, it's something that like isn't necessarily the actual medication that's being administered that's actually affecting the like, you know, immune system, the white blood cells, whatever it is. It's like, you know, the preservative is a different preservative, right? Yeah, it's something along those lines or some okay. other reason. Um, as long as it's not that, you know, the body's developed antibodies against the right. therapy or things like that, um, it should be something they can make the case that the patient just didn't do well on the biosimilar. I'm sorry, I'm just thinking about the data that we do have about switching and not, not even just biosimilars, like with people who are using a certain one of the biologics and then they get switched to another one and then they get switched to another one. You know, the likelihood of the next one working based on research, your percentage exponentially goes down every single time. And so the whole time you're talking about switching and it being fine and that's what data shows, I just, in the back of my mind, that's what is running is the switching for us and really for moderate to severe cases, right? Because mild to moderate doesn't really have that same disease course. So the moderate to severe, it makes me nervous as a moderate to severe person myself. Yeah. And, you know, I think, I think that's such an important point. And I think this really kind of gets the heart of a different problem is really that insurance companies are kind of mandating and dictating care for patients. And I think that's a very important topic and it's something that I feel very passionate about as well, because I think to your point, we, you know, switching therapies and really abandoning therapies early or burning bridges by doing these kind of aspects that are definitely problematic for us. So really keeping people on certain therapies for as long as we can and, you know, dose optimizing and things along those lines are so, so important. And I think that's something that we need to continue advocating for as well is really, you know, providing those and going to battle with insurance companies. It seems like every year the battle gets harder and harder as we're moving on, like more robots are found out, the goalpost is always moving and changing. But, you know, really advocating for patients is such an important aspect. And really, just as a healthcare team, making sure we are advocating for our patients and making sure they get the therapies that they need, I think is an important, important consideration. For sure. I 100% agree with you. And I mean, the goalpost keeps moving because 
more things are introduced, you know, more biosimilars are introduced or different types of biosimilars are introduced. And so that sort of keeps adding layers of complexity to it. I think what I want to make sure I I stress to people is that, and I'm going to, and you correct me where I get this wrong, because it may happen that biosimilars have to prove they are effective in doing the same thing as the original originator product. So if you are put in a biosimilar, especially like you've never taken Remicade before, but you end up on Avsola, you can trust that it's going to work just like Remicade. What we are talking about now is people who have started on Remicade or in, in Fliximab and then get switched to one of these products, that that being a bit of a concern for us because we're not really sure what happens with that. So if you are put directly onto one of these products, please trust that they work. Yes. Correct. Yes. And thank okay. you so much for clarifying that and just making it very clear. Absolutely. Biosimilars have shown they're safe and effective. They're completely okay to use. Starting on biosimilars, totally appropriate. At our center, we 100% advocate for patients to be on biosimilars as well. Even being on Remicade and switching maybe one time to Inflectra, Rimplexis, Asola, totally okay too. The area that I think we just need some additional research and better data on is multiple switches between the biosimilars. So that's like going from Rimplexis Tenflectra back to Sola, then back to Tenflectra again, and then Remplexis. That's that's the part that we you know we just need better data on. But absolutely, biosimilars are safe and effective. Okay, thank you. I just want to make sure people hear that, just because in case you happen to be starting on one of these, that you know you can trust that the reason they're actually at the market is that they do work. I don't want you to feel like you're you're getting an inferior product just because it's not the originator drug. So thank yep. you, David. You know, again, taking on insurance and their uh, and their practicing healthcare is a whole different topic. <laughs> And we'll get there. One of the things I definitely want to talk to you about is you in particular, I mean, part of what you brought up is just you as being an advocate to patients. So talk a little bit more about how you got involved in wanting to be this advocate to patients. Because I really think a lot of people don't necessarily think about their pharmacist as as being part of their advocacy team to get them the right treatment. So let's start there because I definitely want to talk about your role doing that. Yeah. So, you know, I think for me is starting off with a lot of time pharmacy teams with certain kind of IBD centers. I think a lot of times the role we play is navigating the prior authorization process as well as appeals and things like that. You know, I think after a while, though, when we're seeing the patients who are just really symptomatic, they're not feeling good. They need these therapies. And, you know, we're just battling with insurance companies and just trying to get this approved for them. It's been months. And, you know, I think if the roles are reversed, if I was asymptomatic for that long, you know, it's just not a good feeling. So I think for me is knowing that patients need the therapies they need, but they can't get it. Just something just doesn't really sit right with me for that. And it's just kind of painful, I think, for me to see. So I think from there, I wanted to better understand what this meant. Like when we see these delays, how much of a delay are we talking about? When we're thinking about, you know, the barriers that are made and kind of things along those lines, what are we talking about? So, you know, I think for me is a better understanding of that, you know, is getting on the phone with insurance companies and explain to them, this is why the patient needs it. You need to make this urgent. You need to expedite it. I want to speak to a a supervisor to see what we can do of kind of pushing this lawn type aspect. Because, you know, really, I do think without that, patients just won't be able to start their therapy. And that's definitely kind of not a concern for us. So, you know, because it's such a concern, that's something that I feel strongly about. 
And what's so super frustrating is the times when people do start on, on therapy and then something happens and then the therapy gets delayed. And you know, the longer the therapy gets delayed, the riskier it is because either they're going to flare or then, like you said, it might not be an option anymore for them because they start to build up antibodies to whatever it is. So I I definitely think that that's super important. I want to back you up a little bit though, because you meant, you mentioned a couple of insurance terms that probably Robin knows really well. And I know some about, but you mentioned mentioned prior authorization. So for those people new to this space or perhaps family members that are having to help other people navigate, what is a prior authorization? Yeah. So um, when we think about therapies of the advanced IB therapies that we talked about a little bit ago about the biologics and the small molecules, um, these are generally high cost medications. So the cost of these therapies are a little bit more expensive than some of the other therapies that are currently on the market for other conditions and kind of things like that. So, you know, we're not a society of unlimited resources where, you know, we just have tons, you know, we can just get whatever we need. So I think cost is an important consideration. So prior authorizations is one cost containment strategy that insurance companies use. And essentially a prior authorization is before using it, we need to give you approval. We need to say, yes, we agree with this and we will pay for it for you to get this medication. So here are the criteria that you need to hit. By we, you mean the insurance company, not you, the doctors or you, David Choi, pharmacist. Yep. Yep. Got it. Uh, Thank you for clarifying that. So the insurance companies will essentially say, all right, we will pay for this medication if you meet these certain conditions. So do you have this diagnosis? Have you tried this therapy? Have you tried cheap, you know, less expensive therapies and kind of things like that? So that's kind of the purpose of prior authorizations, which, you know, I think in a theoretical sense, it you know, it makes sense. Cost containment, making sure we're, we're really using this t- to the best that we can. So the prior authorization was kind of built for that reason. I think the problem that we're encountering now, though, is that the prior authorization is becoming too burdensome and there are automatic denial pathways. So if you answer a question a certain way, even though clinically it makes very good sense to use it, just because of that one question that was answered a certain way, it automatically denies. So no one actually really took a look at it. It was an automatic denial that kind of comes up. So from there, what we'll do is something called an appeals after that. So an appeals is where we're going back to the insurance and say, hey, we know you denied the prior authorization. This is why we don't agree with it. And this is why it's absolutely medically necessary for this therapy. And there's that kind of process that we have to help try and overturn that denial. I always am proactive, right? Well, not so much anymore because it hasn't been denied the last time, but my biologic gets renewed every year. And the first few years I was on it, I knew it was going to be denied when the renewal came around. Like I just knew that it was. So I proactively reached out to my doctor and was like, hey, can we start this process early because it's going to be denied and I don't want to miss a dose. And so do you encourage patients to like, take action and make sure that their medical team is on top of that, or it doesn't make sense for patients to be proactive in that way. Yeah, absolutely. So um, at University of Chicago, the way that our system works, um, in our pharmacy system, we actually will immediately restart the prior authorization process two weeks before the prior authorization expires. So for the most part, we try to stay ahead of it. Um, That being said, though, there's a lot of issues that may come up, a lot of hiccups, insurances change, you know, your insurance change or the insurance change criteria and kind of things like that. So I always even tell our own patients, be advocates for yourself as well. I don't think there's any harm 
of asking, hey, you know, was a prior authorization done? Because, you know, I think for us, the situations we're always trying to avoid is on a Friday night or Friday afternoon at 4.59 p.m., you were due for your dose on Monday, you're flaring, and then, you know, it turns out there was an insurance issue that we have to navigate at this point to get you to get the therapy. So, you know, I totally would 100% advocate just always, 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 you know, if you if you're uh, wondering, just send send your provider team a message, just like, hey, you know, I'm sure you guys are on top of it. But I just want to double check if you know, this was being done, because there's nothing wrong with it. And you know, honestly, we appreciate the accountability too. I actually really love it when patients are on top of it as well, because it just kind of is a good team together. I think both patient and provider team together of really getting the therapies that that patients need. One of the things I love is that not only are you a clinician and you're part of this care team, but you also do research. And some of your research is in this specific area. And so you have some articles that have been published about like insurance delays and what that does. Will you tell us about how that got started, number one, but also one of your articles specifically talks about like breaks it down into like what gets denied, why does it get denied, like what medications, what like, and like actually gives some real world data on this. So talk first about why did you, why, how did this get started? And then what have you learned as part of your research around kind of maybe some patterns that you're seeing? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks so much for asking about that. So, you know, I think the real big interest for me came from the standpoint of something that was always difficult and frustrating for me is watching patients who need the therapy they need. They're very symptomatic. There's a lot of stuff going on. And, you know, we're just watching as we're trying to get the approval for it. So I think there was just something, you know, I feel like from a moral injury standpoint of just just seeing this. So I think for us, you know, we know what the problems are. We know that we get angry with insurance companies or, you know, we just go to battle with insurance companies as well. But for me, I wanted to better understand what is the actual data? Like, what are we actually looking at in terms of the problem? Like, we know it's a problem. And a lot of surveys have been done that shows providers saying, yes, this is a problem. But for me, I was, what is the hard and fast data behind it? So it was really interesting that what we found was with each step of the process, so the prior authorization, the first level appeal, the second level appeal, and then external review after, each step added significant time to delay because insurance companies would have to take time to review it. Faxes would have to get sent, which, you know, I can't believe it's 2023 and we're still talking about faxes at this point. And, you know, a fax failed and then someone didn't get it and and kind of all these things along those lines. So what we found was the initial prior authorization took about 11 days for the turnaround time to, to get done. So either it was approved or denied. So it took about on average, on mean, like about 11 days for, for that to get turned around. From there, the first level appeal took another two weeks after that. So we're talking about at this point, almost a month after the doctor and the patient together decided this is my therapy. So a month behind would be that. So with the second level appeal, that was almost another month that was added to it. And then the external review in total took about two to three months. So that's two to three months for us to figure out, yes, the patients can start therapy or no, they can't. Which, you know, once again, I think from a cost containment and understanding where not in an unlimited resource you know, country, it makes sense. But I don't think two to three months is okay, though. (laughs) Like for us to get that determination, I think it should be a little bit better. So, you know, in particular, what I found concerning was that automatic denial where, you know, we talked about specific questions are asked that automatically added two weeks to a month extra of trying to get this approved. So, you know, I just I don't think that that's fair. Prior authorizations are designed to evaluate the need. That's what it should do, not be a marker for automatic denial. So I think that was something 
kind of a big eye opener for us based on our study. Some of the other things that we found was we try to look at what were the factors that went into approvals versus denials. Like what would be specific reasons that led to increased you know incidence of approvals and denials? And we found really interesting results. So the first one was for some reason we found that patients with Crohn's disease seem to get more approvals. I don't know if that's because of the perceived notions of the complications, like maybe Crohn's disease reviewers are like, oh, that sounds more serious than ulcerative colitis does. But that was something that we found was that Crohn's disease tend to have higher rates of approvals. The other two things that we found that was really interesting is that the FDA approval status, so meaning it's FDA approved for Crohn's disease, it's FDA approved for ulcerative colitis, was a huge impact in the determinant of approval rates. So if it's FDA approved for it, it's way more likely to get approved than if it's not FDA approved for it, which I think is sometimes a concern because we have a lot of patients who are treatment refractory that we do need to use off-label indication. Because you know at this point, even though more therapies are, are coming down the line and more therapies are getting approved every day, um, one of the main issues is sometimes we don't have that as an option and we do need to use these certain therapies. So for me, that was kind of interesting as well. So the FDA approval, even though that isn't, you know, a an important consideration is almost like an end-all be-all type aspect too, which to me was kind of a big eye-opener in terms of how much of an impact that had. And then, you know, I think going back to what we were talking about earlier with Robin was optimizing the doses, keeping patients on that therapy, not burning the bridge and just jumping to the next one. One of the things that we do is we'll always try and optimize the dose as much as we can. We'll try and get the dose to, you know, be the dose that the patient requires. So a lot of off-label dosing is used, meaning that's not the original FDA approved dose. But since then, studies have been done that have shown that higher doses are sometimes needed. But that was also an end-all be-all with insurance companies too. And essentially, their rationale is always, this is an off-label in, like therapy or off-label dose. And that just sometimes was you know kind of a problem for us. Okay. To make sure that people understand the vernacular you're using, off-label, meaning that sometimes you would make the dose higher than the FDA originally sort of, or it was originally approved for, or it would be the duration, like when you get it. So for instance, it might be, for instance, for some infusions, you get it every six weeks, but now your doctor is saying, well, let's try it every four weeks to try to see if the additional dosage helps you get your disease under control. That's what you're talking about when you're talking about optimizing, correct? Yes. So by okay. optimizing the dose, yeah, optimizing either the amount of medication you receive at one time or the frequency at which you're you're receiving it, those are the different ones. So, you know, when we think yeah. about things going for FDA approval, a lot of money and time go into it. So they study it through trials and things like that. They say, all right, here's the dose that, you know, we studied it for. It's been shown to be effective, you know, submitted to the FDA and then it gets approved. Since then though, you know, we are trying to optimize it. So we have some patients who are on therapy, they're doing well, maybe a week or two before their next dose, some symptoms come back. So at that point, we'll say, all right, let's try and give it a little bit more frequently then to see if that'll kind of help prevent the breakthroughs symptoms. So the, mm-hmm. that's where the real world data comes out a little bit more because it really shows the efficacy. But the problem though, is to get the FDA label changed, they need to redo those trials all over again and submit that data to the FDA, which is a lot of time and money. Okay. Yeah. I mean, but that, but you're right. Cause there are sometimes we're just changing the cadence mm-hmm. of when you get it can be the thing that makes it so that it's 
actually effective for you, not changing to a different medication, but just the cadence. Yep. And then you can just stay on that medication and, you know, our patients get back into remission on that different cadence of therapy. So, you know, I think that's, that was like kind of an eye opener for us too, is that that was such an important factor to the insurance companies for the approval or not. And to me, once again, thinking about our patients and advocating for patients, it's just something obviously is broken in terms of what the standard of care is versus what the insurance companies are mandating us to. So for me, those were some of the quantified data that we got. And, you know, I think it was things that we, we already knew, but actually seeing the data for what it was, I think that was very interesting for us to see. We've had several dietitians on the show that have talked about supplements and making sure that you talk to your medical provider before just taking supplements willy-nilly, making sure you had the labs. But drug interactions is a really important part of adding supplements to your regime. And I don't know that we've had anybody really dive into that too much, just you know, making sure you talk to your doctor and making sure that they're third-party tested, those kinds of things. But drug interactions can be dangerous. So like, where do we go from here? (laughs) Yeah, you know, I think the data behind drug interactions with supplements, there's a lot that we do know. And there's a lot that we still don't know at this time, especially when newer supplements are coming out and things along those lines. So that's, you know, one of the one of the benefits of asking your neighborhood friendly pharmacists about any kind of drug interactions with supplements, because it is something where we may have some additional resources, we can look into databases, things like that, that kind of can help us guide that conversation a little bit more. I think as a pharmacist, when I hear supplements, the way that I kind of think about it is, well, what's the harm of taking it? That's kind of the first thing that I think about, just because the data for efficacy tends to be a little bit harder to, to tease out. So, you know, for me is what's the harm? So what are the side effects? What are the interactions, drug interactions, disease state interactions, and things along those lines? And because you're right, there are certain supplements. I think a lot of times we may just think of, oh, it's natural, it's herbal, it's supplements, it's safe. And that's not the case. We know that there are some medications that do have significant drug interactions. One of the ones I always talk about is one called St. John's wort, which you can buy over the counter as a supplement. But people don't know it's actually an inducer of a certain enzyme in your body that causes you to chew through medications much faster. So um, that's a big drug interaction that, that we see. So, you know, just anytime you start any kind of supplement or herbal, if you have an IBD pharmacist or a care team or anything like that, just run it by them just to ask them, you know, hey, is it okay for me to start this therapy? Generally, what I'll always do is go the ingredients list, look at what's in there, then run that in my database and just confirm, you know, it appears to be okay, like at least from a drug interaction standpoint. Efficacy, that's a different story in terms of does it actually work. But you know, from a harm standpoint, if you feel strongly taking it, it's it's okay. But if it's something where, you know, it may be we don't have data or something like that, just going back and saying, you know, at this time, I would advise you not to take that that supplement. It's not just supplements, though. I, I want to throw that out there because I'm thinking when you mentioned the friendly neighborhood pharmacist, which everyone... I mean, I went and got, what did I get filled? Was it when I just got my methotrexate filled? That for the first time, they were like, hey, you're also taking this. So did your doctor tell you that when you take these two things together, that it causes you to bruise more easily? And if you get cut, then you don't clot as fast. And so there's other things like that, that your friendly neighborhood pharmacist can advise you of and inform you of if you haven't gotten that information from your doctor. 
Yeah, and that's definitely something that we always will do. Um, anytime we have a new start with any kind of therapies, as a pharmacist, one of the very first questions I have is, can I just run through your med list with you very quickly, just to make sure it's nice and clean and that there's no drug interaction. So we'll just go, you know, line by line, just make sure it's correct. And at the end of the day, just making sure, you know, are there any other herbals or supplements or anything else that you're taking that may not be on this list? But absolutely, you know, drug interactions are an important consideration. And really, that's, I think, one of the resources we're here for as pharmacists is being experts with drug interactions. Well, and I think it's important to point out that like just because it's a plant or it's natural doesn't mean it's safe to use with every medication because I think people just kind of assume that it's like like putting basil on your food. It's like, Mm -hmm. well, no, like that's, it's not harmless because isn't it St. John's Wort and like SSRIs that are actually like very dangerous together? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a big one, too, because the St. John's Ward has serotonergic effects, too. And they actually, you know, I think one of the uses of it is for mood, you know, in terms of St. John's Ward. So absolutely, that's a, that's a big interaction there, too. But, you know, I think, I think it's hard for us to keep track of it for, you know, for the time being as well. So that's why, you know, for any kind of patients out there, or any team, just feel free to reach out if you do have any other questions, you know, kind of related to those, just because it's always better to be safe than sorry. My PSA for everyone because if you've listened to the show at all, you know that I tend to go rogue, but I always make sure that I update the medications that I'm taking and add over-the-counter medications, anything to the list that any doctor that I see so that it's in my Epic or whatever. I feel like I'm, I have three different patient portals going right now because not everybody has Epic, but I always make sure that my, the drugs that I'm taking or supplements or whatever are all listed because of this reason. This is not something that I want to play around and go rogue on. Very smart. And also, even if you think your doctor may not love to see it, for instance, we got into a very interesting conversation with Dr. Kanukin about like people who you are utilizing cannabis as part of what they're using to treat their symptoms and or their disease. And so be honest with your doctor and your pharmacist about these things, because sometimes there might be drug interactions that they can help you make sure that you're avoiding David, I'm going to back you up a hair to your research. One of your research that you were looking at, they know you noted it was the same thing where you're looking at prior offs and things like that. But one of the things you noticed is that that you noted in there was what you refer to as pharmacist initiated interventions. This was role and impact of a clinical pharmacy team at an inflammatory bowel disease center. It was published in Crohn's and Colitis 360 on April 15th, 2023. And so, yeah, that was that was something that we just wanted to cap, kind of better understand as well. Because I think, you know, going back to our previous conversation earlier, where we asked that question of what is the role of an IBD pharmacist? I think a lot of times we get our foot in the door with the prior authorizations and appeals because, you know, that's something we're used to. We know how to kind of navigate that prospect. But as um, I think more and more pharmacists start getting comfortable with inflammatory bowel disease and therapies, I think there's more of a clinical role that a pharmacist wants to play and, you know, should play as well in terms of making these kind of interventions. So one thing we hope to characterize was not just the prior authorization process and how we got patients the medication, but really what were some of the additional roles. So I think for me that what I've kind of come to realize is I think the role of a clinical pharmacist in IBD is essentially to ensure the safe, effective, and timely initiation and continuation of therapies. So that safe and effective, I think, is an important consideration too. So through the pharmacist interventions, it was, you know, 
finding those drug interactions. When patients are calling us and telling us having breakthrough symptoms, making recommendations to the team of, you know, dose optimizing and kind of things along those lines. So those were the type of aspects that we were trying to better capture through that study of, you know, what are some of the additional roles that pharmacists have. So that was kind of something that we were hoping to get. And really, I think predominantly we found is mostly kind of related to keep, you know, making sure patients stayed on their therapy. So something happened with insurance companies or the outside pharmacy where the patients weren't able to get the medications that they need. So then we essentially would go back and try and figure that out, you know, use samples or kind of anything along those lines to kind of help patients stay on therapy. So that was kind of the big role that we have. This is a continuously evolving process, I think, for us. So the clinical interventions was something we were hoping to characterize originally, but now I think we're trying to build a framework for how pharmacists can be doing this. So specific follow-up calls at a certain cadence that we're making to patients to make sure that, you know, they are doing well, catching issues before they become issues, um, kind of things along those lines. Real quality of care. Yeah. yeah. I I love the sound of that. That's the thing that I think I'm really fortunate being at my current institution at University of Chicago. It's just the collaboration, the multidisciplinary, the multi-professional kind of work that we do together. I'm really encouraged, I think, by the whole team to to take on more of those roles and kind of play those kind of roles as well. So for me, it's been really great. And, you know, every day just continue to learn, see new things come up and just keep growing the, the skill set over time. I just love that this is like another champion in your corner as a patient. Like you're just one more person that's got their back and can help them understand this. I think that's so cool. Yeah. And, you know, I think for me, that's something that I will always feel passionate about is getting patients the therapy they need. So I will do whatever it takes to, and I'll make as many calls as it takes to, to make sure that patients get the therapies that they need. I know it's time to wrap us up, but I want to ask you one more question. You are, you're writing this chapter, right? This new chapter, but you also are very passionate about educating other pharmacists who are new to this space because it is still a new discipline. What does that look like when you are the person writing the chapter on this? Like, where do you get the additional information? Are you talking about your research? Are you talking about what other IBD pharmacists are doing across the country? Like, are you seeing a big uptick in IBD pharmacists and the need for that specific education? Yeah. So um, it's actually really interesting you brought that up because recently we um, had something kind of to address this topic or kind of do something similar. So more recently over the past couple of years, it's been a collaboration between University of Chicago, Cleveland Clinic, and Mayo Clinic as well. Um, I think when I first started, I thought I was the only IBD pharmacist out there. Like, I thought I was by myself. <laughs> like I was like, oh, they're, you know, I'm just the only one. So there's a lot of things I had to kind of figure out on my own and figure out, you know, I think this is what we should be doing. But slowly over time, I think we meet another pharmacist. Like in Chicago, you know, there was other pharmacists that I realized were practicing in IBD too. So slowly kind of through this collaboration and through Cleveland Clinic as well as Mayo Clinic too, we, we started building a network of IBD pharmacists. So uh, for the past about year to two years, we've actually been building a network and we call it the IBD Pharmacist Network, um, where we have pharmacists from all across the country practicing in the IBD space. That's really part of our group. Currently, I think we have up to like 70 people in our, in our group and that's across the country and it's just growing every single day. So kind of through there is kind of a platform for best practices, sharing ideas, saying, hey, have you encountered this situation yet or this question? Like, how did you kind of navigate it as well? So, you know, I think for me is that feeling that I had when I first started of being like feeling like I was on an island by myself. I just always wanted to correct that. So hopefully through this network, it's something where newer pharmacists coming every day, you know, they don't feel alone on an island by themselves. It's a group of our 
archipelagos together, that we're, you know, in a network together, we can share and, and do all that. So more recently, we actually did the first IBD pharmacist symposium through the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. Yeah, so um, essentially through there, we we're hoping to hit that reset button of spending an entire session going over the therapies for IBD, how do we monitor for IBD. So hopefully from there, we get that foundation built and, for, and you know, we can just start growing the IBD pharmacists and the clinical pharmacists as well. I love that so, so much. Like Alicia said previously, it's just another person, another tool in your toolbox, another person in your corner, another professional that this, that's there to help IBD patients manage their care and stay in remission and live their best lives. But it is time for the last question. What's the one thing that you want the IBD community to know? And you can go patient or professional or both. So I guess I'll gear this towards the healthcare professional out there, but essentially the big one that I would give is really the importance of interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary work together. I think, you know, when we think about the IBD, caring for IBD patients, it really takes a village and we all have our roles. We all are part of the team and really just advocating for ourselves and advocating for a team approach as well, I think is big. That's the thing that I learned the most, I think, at my current institution is the importance of advocating not for ourselves, for the patients, but really for the entire team as a whole. And I think that's been the really great thing. And I, you know, would just continue to keep advocating for that too. So working with nurses, dietitians, providers, uh, advanced practice providers, nutritionists, dietitians, you know, everybody as well. I think that's kind of like an important aspect. Absolutely. I think that interdisciplinary team is, is super vital and having a pharmacist as part of that team, I think is such an important piece of this because you do have very different knowledge and skills than all of these other folks. And so I think it's super vital, but David, holy cow, what a treasure you are and what a fun conversation with you. Thank you so much for coming and joining us. I think people will find this episode so informative and so interesting. So thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to our listeners for joining us and listening and cheers. Hi, this is David. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, subscribe, and share it with your friends.